we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Is someone really dead after being declared dead? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse, always a beat ahead. Organ donation is a wonderful gift to a fellow human being. One organ donor of critical organs such as the heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys can save up to eight lives. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, over 100,000 Americans are awaiting organs and there's over 40,000 transplants performed in 2021. But like so many things in today's culture, the zeal to procure organs for transplant may have, as they say, gone too far. Death is always an uncomfortable topic, and organ harvesting is even more so. I remember the first time I was giving an anesthetic for an organ harvest. I was thinking, if the patient is dead, why do they need me? Well, of course, the patient's heart was beating, his kidneys were still functioning. I gave a good anesthetic, keeping all the vital signs stable with multiple drugs and every tool I had at my disposal. Then the surgeon looked up and instructed me to turn it all off. I couldn't walk away. I stayed until the patient's heart stopped beating quite a while later. So what is death for the purposes of organ harvesting? In the United States, if a person is pronounced brain dead, they're dead. Also, they're dead if all their circulation and breathing functions stop. But the need for human organs for transplants has spawned some eye-popping processes. Currently, surgeons are experimenting with, frankly, a Frankensteinian-sounding procedure where patients who are terminal, meaning they're going to die, no one can say what minute they're going to die, are allowed to die. Then their hearts are resuscitated and they clamp off the blood flow to the brain. It just sounds, I don't know, a little thick. In January, 2022, surgeons implanted a genetically modified pig heart into a human. The patient lived for 49 days. The surgeons got their transplants, but medical ethics may have died. The American Medical Association's Code of Medical Ethics addresses these organ transplantation issues. The first guideline says, quote, in all professional relationships between a physician and a patient, the physician's primary concern must be the health of the patient. A prospective organ transplant offers no justification for a relaxation of the usual standard of medical care for the potential donor. I don't know if we're following that anymore. 
Organ transplantation is a great medical breakthrough that saves and improves lives. As with any medical procedure, informed consent with a full discussion of all the available information and assurance that the highest ethical standards is essential. But sometimes the unattractive details of organ donation get glossed over. Well, today's conversation will provide some food for thought. My guest today is Dr. Heidi Klessig. She attended medical school at University of Wisconsin, where she also completed her residency in anesthesiology. She also is a qualified pain management physician and the founding partner of the Pain Clinic of Northwestern Wisconsin. And she was an instructor for the International Spinal Injection Society. She is the co-author of Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life, What Christians Need to Know About Organ Donation and Procurement. She and her co-author, Christopher Bogosh, also maintain a website called Respect for Human Life, and that deals with these issues around organ transplantation. Welcome, Dr. Klesik. Thank you so much, Marilyn. I am so pleased to be here with you today, and thank you for that, that excellent lead-in. I think we're going to have a great discussion. Well, me too. Well, first of all, we'll just start off. What is your view on the biology of the beginning of life in general? Well, I believe that life begins at the moment of fertilization, when the uh, egg from the mom and the sperm from the dad get together and, and uh, God imbues that with a, a spark of life, making this a totally new person, different from his parents. And this person is now a unique living soul. And I follow the teaching of the historical church that the person is a body-soul unity. We're, we're not an embodied soul or an ensouled body, as Plato or Aristotle would say. We are a body-soul unity. And that helps me to understand you know, when death occurs. Death occurs when the God-given spirit departs from the body. And this causes all of the systems that had been working together in harmony, the, the heart, the breathing, the blood pressure, our temperature control, all of those things no longer integrate. And so in biology class, we learn that death is the loss of the integration of the organism as a whole. And even our English language helps us understand that when the spirit departs from the body, that integration is lost, causing the body to dis integrate, right? Disintegrate is then what we do. Our, our body becomes a corpse and returns to the ground. Wow. I think so few people even think about this. And like I said in the intro, death is hard to talk about, but it's this whole transplant issue has made it come to the forefront. I just want to ask you, uh, first of all, just to begin this, what organs can be used for transplant and which ones does the person still have to be alive? I know at the end of, uh, it's actually pretty gruesome, but somebody has to do it. Um, at the end of cases where a patient did in fact die, you could sit there for a couple hours waiting for the team to come and harvest bones 
because the person didn't have to be alive to give their bones or corneas, but go through each organ and, you know, why the donor, why we have to get these definitions we'll get to of life and death. Well, on our website, respectforhumanlife.com, we have a, our, our main thesis. And, and I'm just going to go through that because I think it makes this much clearer and easier to understand. Our organs, and, and people understand what organs are. Organs are things like our heart, our lungs, our liver, our kidneys. Organs are very complex collections of tissues, and they are very dependent on a continuous flow of oxygen and nutrition in our circulation in order to remain healthy. Once our heart stops and that circulation stops, the organs very, very quickly begin to break down and become unsuitable for transplant. So anything that you would classify as an organ can only, 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 only be harvested from a living donor. Um, tissues, on the other hand, are things, you know, when doctors say tissues, of course, I don't mean puffs and Kleenex. I mean, uh, things like the skin, the bone, the corneas, uh, heart valves, even fat. These other tissues do not require so much oxygen to stay viable. And so a corpse can be an excellent source of tissue donation, just as you mentioned, when you sit in the OR, the, the bones last a long time, but the organs must come from a living donor. Well, how many deaths, can compare the deaths to the number of organ transplants? Well, this is, a, this is a, another helpful way to help people understand that obviously organs can only be harvested from someone who is still alive. So in 2021, uh, there were about one and a half million registered organ donors who sadly died. Now in that same year, there were only 100,000 people waiting for a transplant. So if indeed these one and a half million dead organ donors could donate heart, lung, liver, kidneys, organs, there should be a tremendous surplus. I mean, if you do the math, one and a half million registered organ donors who died and only 100,000 people waiting for a transplant, that would compute so that every recipient could get 15 organs. So obviously, dead people cannot, are, cannot be a, an organ donor or we would have a surplus. So how do we solve this puzzle? How, how is this happening? So if you look at organdonor.gov, they say only three in 1,000 people die in such a way that allows for deceased organ donation. So what is this new way of dying? If only three in a thousand people die in such a way that you can harvest organs, something fishy is going on. Well, it does make you wonder now, isn't there something we have the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act and what is it, uh, the that there's the act that defines death. And I want you to go through all these things. And um, initials are kind of hard to follow, even though some of these names are long. We'll, we'll pretty much say the full name of these very acts so people really understand what you're talking about. So get started sure. here. Okay. Well, let's start with 
there's an, an ethical standard. This is not a law, but an ethical standard called the dead donor rule. And, and this is just a conscience clause for that I think everyone could sign on to. It says that organ donors cannot be killed in order to obtain their organs, and therefore organ procurement cannot in and of itself cause death. Now, I think we can all get on board with that. We don't want to kill anybody for their organs, right? Right. Um, let's hope. Let's hope. But sad, sadly, um, because of this ethical standard, um, doctors unfortunately have begun to use some creative language and the force of the legal code to uh, enforce upon the public a definition of death that doesn't represent biological death. Rather, they have redefined certain people as dead legally. So in America and around the world, you can be at the same time legally dead while biologically alive. Um, the that, said, that's one thing that I just have to repeat. Legally dead, but biologically alive. That's kind of hard to get your arms and your mind wrapped around that. But this is the state of affairs in the transplant arena. Absolutely. And, and later on, as we talk, I, some of your listeners may remember the case of Jahai McMath, a 13-year-old girl who was legally dead in the state of California, but biologically alive in the state of New Jersey. We'll get to her later. Um, in uh, 1968, uh, some doctors at the Harvard Medical School got together and they decided that they should redefine uh, irreversible coma as equal to death. And they had a few reasons for doing that, but probably the biggest one was to free up a source of organ donors who were biologically alive, their organs were well perfused, their hearts were beating, and their organs would be in very good shape to be removed for transplant. So by the stroke of a pen, you know, by fiat, they said, we are going to consider people who are in, quote, an irreversible coma, unquote, to be actually dead. And there were no studies on that. There were no um, investigations. There were you know, no case series. They just did it by the stroke of a pen. And so as of 1968, this became a, a new legal definition of death. Wow. And where, where have we gone from there? Well, in... 1981, uh, we in the, uh, the nation of America passed the Uniform Determination of Death Act, and, and that is called the UDDA, which is something that we may come back to from time to time as we speak. Uh, the UDDA codified what the Harvard doctors had pronounced uh, into law, and at this time, every, every one of the 50 states has some form of this uh, Uniform Determination of Death Act, or UDDA, in their legal code. Um, the UDDA has two different ways that you could be defined as legally dead. Uh, the first is that you have the irreversible cessation of your heart and lung function, or you could have those things still working. Your heart and lungs could still be working, and you might have the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Either one of those is enough to have someone declared legally dead. 
And the code goes on to say that the determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. Hmm. Well, this is very interesting because this term, accepted medical standards, is very squishy language. And again, that's something that can change from state to state, community to community, when they talk about what the standard of care is. And you think about the ethical guideline from the AMA, they say, medical standards should not be breached when it comes to transplantation. Well, we're going to get into more details about this uh, after our little break. And uh, I first want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 with an encore at 10 p.m. Eastern and the next morning at 8 a.m. on iHeartRadio. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. The best part is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of the networks, Apple and Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So just make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. Our lineup is what I find interesting because it's a different person every night. There's me on Mondays, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, Tuesdays with concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tangersley, Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays with nurse Jody O'Malley. And we do have our new feature. Any questions you have, just send them to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices, it's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. 
liberty and justice for all. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. Okay, well, we're back with Dr. Klesik, and we're going to continue this conversation about the legal definitions of death versus the biological death and what this all has to do with transplants. So please continue. Okay. Um, You had also asked me earlier about the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, Uh, This was originally enacted in 1968, the same year in which the Harvard Committee had made their pronouncement that people who were in an irreversible coma were now to be declared as dead. And it was set up as a federal framework that sets up how anatomical gifts can be made. And it's been revised a couple times. The last revision was in 2006, which were specifically made to address shortages of organs for transplant and to encourage donation. A couple things that that people should be aware of in those 2006 revisions to the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. Uh, The first thing is that it expanded the list of persons who can consent to organ donation. It used to be just your your legal agent or your family member would have to give consent if you came to the hospital and you were unconscious and, and they wanted wanted your organs. It had to be a family member. But the 2006 revision expanded this so that if a family member and agent is not readily available, uh, the coroner, the medical examiner, or even the hospital administrator can consent to have you donate your organs. And so it's, it's a bit concerning to me that this list of people who can consent for you now includes people whose interest, you know, might be more in your organs than in the interest of, of you as a person. Uh, well, the this second- is, oh, I was just going to say, this is one reason why, you know, there have been studies and they say even though uh, Black patients need more organs because of the high hypertension and kidney failure rate, they have fewer donations. But part of that is that history of distrust of uh, the man the administration after the Tuskegee episode that still rings in people's minds. And now it seems like that, that thought it could be, it goes beyond race that when you find out that a hospital administrator could consent for you, it makes you feel a, a, a little bit creepy. Well, I'm I am sorry that you know even during the COVID years, you know our trust in the medical profession has markedly diminished, and that that is a that is a problem, and, and it needs to be fixed. The other change in 2006 revision to the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act was that it now states that if you come into a hospital and you haven't signed a donor card, but you know you're unconscious and and you can't make your wishes known. It says that um, you must explicitly state that you refuse to donate. Otherwise, you will be considered an organ donor. 
So unless you carry in your wallet, I refuse to donate card. You know, my husband says he's tempted to have it tattooed across his chest in case they lose his wallet. Um, you will be considered an organ donor, even if you have not signed an organ donor permission card at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Wow. Wow. That's really actually quite stunning. Well, what does this have to do with the dead donor rule? Well, the dead donor rule says we can't kill people for their organs. But then the Uniform Determination of Death Act redefined death. So now people who are biologically alive are legally dead. So now we've circumvented the dead donor rule by, I guess, using sort of Orwellian language to say you're dead legally when you're actually alive biologically. And then the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act uh, specifically revised to make it easier to obtain those organs, expanded the list of who can consent for you, and also states if you don't carry a refusal to donor card, you're going to be considered a donor. So people, if, if you're concerned about this, if you go to our website, we actually do have a, a link where you can donate, uh, sorry, download a uh, refusal to donate card. And, and it would be something that I have in my wallet. And I would certainly consider a good suggestion for your listeners. Well, it's one of those things. And one of the reasons we do these shows is, as I said in the opening, it's food for thought. And all of this discussion is in no way trying to get people to not donate organs. But I, if you've listened to my show, you know I'm a stickler for informed consent. And I look at this as a way to give people true information and not information they get sadly in some sort of room off the emergency room, hurry up quick, quick, your son was in an accident or your wife was in an accident. That's not the time to have to hear about these things. Absolutely. And and I'm not against transplant. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry that we've started out, you know, kind of on that foot where I have to explain there are unethical transplants, but on the other hand, there are noble, laudable, wonderful ways that people can become an organ donor. And that would be through living donation. And we'll, we'll probably discuss that a little more as we go on. But if you want to donate a kidney to a family member or even to a stranger, this can be done. And there is nothing unethical about that, where both the donor and the recipient remain alive after the procedure. Also donating tissues. If you are biologically dead, completely dead, right? Cold, gray, stiff corpse, you can certainly, it would be a wonderful thing to do to give away your corneas, to give someone a chance to see, uh, to give away, you know, your, your bones or your skin to help people. I'm not at all against that. I am only cautioning people about some of the tricky medical language that has uh, obscured from the public uh, the unethical types of transplants so that the public in, in general is unaware and has never been able to give informed consent because they have been misled about the true state of affairs as to these people being biologically alive but declared legally dead. Well, could you, just to kind of put this in 
a little historical perspective. Can you give the kind of little story how this uh, Uniform Determination of Death Act started, well, let's say was used back in South Africa? Yeah, this is this is a interesting history, you know, and a sad history as to how all of this got started. So many people have heard the name uh, Dr. Christian Bernard. He was the surgeon credited with the first successful heart transplant. Uh, this was back in uh, the apartheid days in South Africa. And in January, I think it was even New Year's Day of 1968, uh, a young black man, uh, 24 years old, named Clive Hout was out picnicking with his family when he suffered a sudden brain hemorrhage and was taken to the hospital in Cape Town. Uh, He was admitted there uh, and his doctor, uh, let's see, his doctor was named Dr. Raymond Hoffenberg. And Dr. Hoffenberg was visited that night by the transplant team uh, headed by Dr. Christian Barnard. And they told Dr. Hoffenberg that they would like him to pronounce Mr. Clive Hout dead. Well, initially, you know, Dr. Hoffenberg said, well, I can't do that. His, his heart is beating. I mean, he's, he's not dead. Um, they must have been awfully persuasive. There was a quote that I saw, and one of the surgeons is reported to have said, good God, Bill, what sort of heart are you going to give us? Uh, meaning that if surgeons waited until Mr. Hope actually biologically died and his heart stopped beating, it would begin to decay and the heart would then be unsuitable for transplant. So under considerable pressure, Dr. Hoffenberg did declare Mr. Hope dead the following morning and uh, Dr. Christian Barnard transplanted his heart into the chest of a 58-year-old retired white dentist, uh, marking the first successful heart transplant. But now the doctors are kind of in a bind because obviously they and everybody else who took a look at this would know that Mr. Hope's death declaration was suspicious ethically and legally. At the same time, they could see that this is successful. And if we can get fresh beating hearts from people, then our heart transplants will succeed. And funny enough, in August of 1968, just eight months later, Uh, was when the Harvard Medical School redefined irreversible coma as being a new criterion for death. Golly, you know, you don't want to think that that was the case, just a way to get fresh organs that you, and I would have loved to have been in on those discussions. What did the people say? Uh, What were they really thinking? How do you get around that sense that you know in your heart the patient's alive, but you're thinking, well, he's not going to be alive much longer, so let's just do this. And uh, I've heard of these brain dead stories, and now one was reported on NBC News, so it wasn't in a conspiracy theory internet rag. Um, that a patient came back to life on the table as they were going to take out her organs. And I'm sure this sort of thing doesn't happen often, but it it just makes us have to think about what what we're doing, what we've what we've done to where we, like you say, you've just used language to make a change 
in biology that isn't really a change. Kind of reminds me of all this gender stuff where you're just using language to change things that biologically really aren't the words that you're using. Yes. In the in 2018, they actually had a medical conference. It was uh, sort of the 50 year anniversary of the Harvard Medical School redefinition of death. And they wanted to get together and they had doctors and surgeons and bioethicists and they reevaluated the, the Harvard criteria. And the consensus of the meeting was that the, uh, U- the UDDA was best described as a legal standard, not a description of death as a biological occurrence. And one of the bioethicists even went on to say that uh, the determination of death was you know, an indoctrinating attempt to settle a moral controversy. And that's mm. part of the reason that, that I wrote a book and I run a website and I speak because, you know, whereas these ideas, they are hotly and vigorously debated in the medical community, but the public is kept in ignorance. The public at large, I think, would be interested to know because it affects every single one of us. But this discussion has not been aired in public. And I think that needs to change, especially because the American Academy of Neurology is looking to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act standards and has actually submitted uh, several suggestions to the Uniform Law Commission, who's set to give us a pronouncement of, of whether they will take these changes by 2025. So what the American Academy of Neurology is proposing is uh, they want to narrow down the definition of brain death to be just brainstem testing at the bedside. As you may remember, I mentioned earlier, the UDDA stipulates that the whole brain has to be dead. But in actual fact, doctors don't test the whole brain. They really just test the brainstem reflexes at the bedside. In fact, in 1971, the requirement to do an electroencephalogram was withdrawn from the standards of the time because many people who had been declared brain dead at the bedside still had electrical activity on their EEG. And almost every patient who is declared brain dead has a functioning hypothalamus, which is part of the brain, and this part of the brain secretes hormones that maintain our blood pressure and fluids in the body, the hormone called ADH. So the whole brain is not dead. And so the American Academy of of Neurology recognizes this and simply wants to remove the whole brain standard from the UDDA and and pare it down to just brainstem reflexes. The other really frightening part of the revised UDDA that they are proposing is they would like to eliminate the necessity to obtain the informed consent of the family or agent of the patient before performing brain dead testing. That's huge. Well, it is huge. And when we come back, I want to talk about some real life cases like we've heard of, of uh, babies being carried through delivery in a presumed brain dead pregnant person. And how can you be brain dead and still deliver a baby? And, and so you have some specific cases and we will discuss those after the break. 
I do want to mention, and you've heard me mention this before, that I've been taking something called CoFix RX. And what this is, is a nasal spray that you use to kill tons of bacteria and viruses. Most of us know that about almost all of us get sick by inhaling viruses through our noses. So if you can stop the virus when it's initially incubating in that first two to five days, we can reduce or the impact of whatever that viral invasion is. This is one of those situations where numbers matter. Um, if you can reduce the number of viruses, hopefully you won't get sick. And this was something that lots of folks, and Dr. McCulloch, one of them, that early on in this whole COVID thing, saw that using povidone iodine did kill these germs for the most part and help folks out in not getting a bad case of COVID or getting COVID at all. And we have to remember, even though everything's been COVID, 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 that there's still just regular old colds and there's still the flu. And again, most of these come in through our nose and then we'd like to catch it before it makes it down to our lungs where we get sick. So anyway, I've been using it. I hope that you all will give it a try because I want everybody to stay healthy so they can keep listening. So just go to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And over on the left side, there's a little button and you can just kind of click that on and learn some more about Cofix RX. And just thank everybody for keeping on listening. And we're going to get back to our topic, a little grim, but something we need to know. Again, in line of informed consent, this may be the only place that you'll hear some of this information. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Whoa, wait. We wash our nose? Yes. The number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean 
Not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Now, doctor, when we left for the little break, we were just talking about the biology versus the legal standard. And I just mentioned having a pregnant woman who's been declared brain dead, yet the baby's born. And you had mentioned earlier Jahi McMath, who I happened to be in Oakland, and her incident happened at Oakland Children's Hospital. Can you uh, go into uh, those things, how a pregnant woman who's dead <laughs> can deliver a baby months later? Sure. I think I think these are, these are some excellent examples that you bring up. So... Again, brain dead patients demonstrate ongoing bodily integration, right? We just find our biology of life and death is whether the body is totally integrated, if it's all its systems are working together. And brain dead patients, whereas they've been declared legally dead, still demonstrate that ongoing bodily integration. And to name a few of those functions, I mean, they, they digest food, they maintain their body temperature, they maintain their electrolyte balance, they heal wounds, they fight infection. Uh, as you mentioned, brain dead pregnant women can successfully gestate their children. There was a recent literature review that revealed that in 35 cases of brain death during pregnancy, 27 neonates were born alive. Wow. Um, so again, these people are biologically alive. I mean, if you have like Jahi McMath, a, a brain dead child who survives following a declaration of brain death, um, Jahi demonstrated physical growth and underwent sexual maturation and began to menstruate while having this diagnosis. Oh, well, so what do we do about it? What would, how should we narrow that definition then of brain death? Well, honestly, you know, I agree with uh, the 50-year commission uh, that studied the Harvard criteria and, and really brain death is a legal fiction. It, it does not represent biology. And so I have to say brain death is not biological death. And I think these people are being exploited and used as means. Their, their personhood is being demeaned. And so I think we need to protect them. I think that brain dead people need to be cared for because, you know, obviously some of them do recover. Uh, there was a recent report in Sky News of a four-month-old baby who had been declared brain dead, but was continued on the ventilator because there was a legal dispute. And the newspaper reported a senior doctor as shocked when the baby started breathing rhythmically and independently two weeks later. Uh, because of this, the wording of the brain death test is going to be changed possibly in England to include a warning about its reliability. Well, can you describe what the test, what would happen to a patient at bedside when the doctors or family have decided to quote unquote, turn the patient off? Sure. Uh, most people are sort of surprised to learn that a diagnosis of brain death does not require any fancy, you know, expensive medical tests. 
I mean, really, it is done at the bedside with with actually common items you might have in your kitchen, to be frank. Um, we would use things like a cotton swab, a flashlight, a tongue depressor, and a, and a syringe of cold water. Um, so the brain stem is tested with these things. So uh, to find out if, if someone is brain dead, a swab of cotton would be touched to their eye to see if it would make the patient blink. A flashlight could be shined in their pupils to see if the pupils contract. Uh, a tongue depressor or the suction device is put into the throat to see if the patient gags or coughs. And a syringe of cold water is shot into the ear canal to see if it makes their eyes dizzy. Uh, generally, the patient is given a painful stimulus, such as pinching a nail bed or, or, or rubbing down uh, forcefully on their sternum to see if the patient reacts. And then uh, the ventilator is withdrawn to see if the patient will take a breath on his own. And it is this ventilator withdrawal or the apnea test that is a, a real problem because the apnea test can actually worsen brain injury. And if you're not sure you know, how this patient's brain is doing, removing them from the ventilator, allowing the carbon dioxide in their blood to build up actually increases their intracranial pressure and can cause further brain damage. Well, which of course, if the person's doing the test they're and in all honesty and in their hearts, they believe the person's dead and they're just confirming this for the record, whether their brain gets worse or not certainly isn't on their mind. It's interesting, both of us are anesthesiologists and we both know that when you do a neurosurgery case, one of the things they ask you to do is breathe very fast for the patient so their carbon dioxide will go down because that's something that is good for the brain when you're having brain swelling. So as you mentioned, you unplug the patient from the ventilator and let the CO2 rise, carbon dioxide, that um, it's by definition, bad for the brain. But, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, 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 it, it's one of those things that kind of twists your mind when you think well, about it. Sadly, there are people who they, uh, they were, they pass their, their first brain death test with the disconnect of the ventilator, but then the second time they fail. And, and is it because we made them worse by the first disconnect? This has happened. Well, and which certainly, certainly makes sense. So at the bedside, do you know, do, do, does anybody fail? Let's put it this way. Does anybody fail the brain death test and people walk away and say, okay, this person isn't brain dead? Uh, yeah, so if, if you uh, respond to any of these tests and, and show that your brain stem is working, I mean, then yes, you, you are not declared brain dead and, and your treatment should and will continue. Uh, but there are, there are people who have undergone these tests and failed and reported hearing the conversation um, between the doctors and their parents in the room discussing taking them from organ harvesting and not being able to move or sign or do anything to to indicate that you're hearing this and listening to it all. And so how, how sensitive are these tests really? If you can fail all the brain death tests and be declared brain dead, yet hear the discussion of your organs about to be harvested. Well, that would be pretty terrifying to say the least. 
Um, I mean, people report, fortunately, it doesn't happen too often under anesthesia. Sometimes they're awake, but they can't move. They have enough anesthesia where they can't move. It doesn't happen often. They even made a movie about this. And I, I was cringing because patients saw the movie and they said, is that going to happen to me? And uh, it would be a pretty terrifying thing. Years ago, um, before there were tons of ethics, and this is not that long, but maybe 35 years ago or so, in France, they did uh, experiments on prisoners where they gave them curare, which paralyzes you. It's the same thing that's in Brazilian poison darts, but it was made into a medication that we use in anesthesia. And they had the prisoners be awake, but they paralyzed them. They breathed for them just to see what would happen and what the people thought. What was interesting in that experiment is that most of the people just fell asleep. And the people who were involved didn't know whether it's just sort of a way to get away from the horrid feeling of being paralyzed and being wide awake. Um, we've done some pretty, pretty sketchy things in medicine. Let's put it that way. That's and, fascinating. I hadn't <laughs> heard that one. But I, I, it's it's one of these things. We're not proud of these moments in medicine, and we just think all we want to do is improve. What would you say would be the best ethical definition of death? Uh, again, I really stick to the biological definition of the integration of the body as a whole. And so when the heart stops beating, the lungs stop breathing, uh, the circulation stops, the spirit returns to the, the Lord who gave it, and the body starts to break down and, and disintegrate, right? The integration is done. That That is the definition of death. And so what I'm advocating for is that we should only perform ethical transplant surgeries, surgeries where the living person remains alive after uh, donating one of a paired organ or a lobe of an organ. Uh, I'm also in favor of people who are biologically dead being able to or uh, donate their tissues. They cannot donate organs, but they can donate tissues. But I think it's unethical and, and immoral to take people who are simply sick and who are almost dead and by the stroke of a pen, declare them dead and actually murder them by the removal of their organs. Okay. And, and I hope everybody realizes that there are doctors here in the United States that feel this way. Now, there's always issues when it comes to administrations and some of these rules and regulations uh, that most of most people don't even hear about them. They're kind of in the weeds for most people, but there's something called conscience protections. And they're actually, sadly, a political football that when President Trump was in office, he tried to strengthen them and conscience protections make it so like, for example, because this is true examples, if you're in the operating room and uh, you don't believe in abortion, you don't have to assist in the abortion. A circulating nurse, an anesthesiologist, you know, they can say, I don't want to be a part of this. 
And the same can go for transplants, gender surgery, certain things that if they're not in your belief system, you have the conscience protection to not have to participate. And now we have another administration and they're trying to change these protections. So just be aware that your doctor does have some protection and wouldn't have to partake in things that they do not believe in. And this is why it's so important. Everything kind of comes back to why you have to have a good patient-doctor relationship where you can discuss these things well beforehand and not at the last minute. Absolutely. And one of the things I just have to mention, because uh, I, oh, a while back, I, it's sometimes it's hard for me to even remember when I did a thing on human trafficking and how that was real. And it kind of got out of the news. I decided it was because they didn't want all these political movers and shakers to get in trouble since they were involved with Jeffrey Epstein. But there is forced human trafficking, just like there's forced organ harvesting. Where have you seen that there's forced organ harvesting? Uh, Forced harvesting is a reality. And uh, this is the execution of a political prisoner in, in communist China is where this is happening uh, right now. And the political prisoner is uh, actually executed via the organ harvesting procedure. Um, in communist China right now, if you are a persecuted religious minority, uh, such as the, the Falun Gong, which is a, a religion of, of meditation and peace, uh, if you are a member of the Uyghur Muslim community, or even now the house church Christian community, uh, these people are subjected to blood and tissue typing as part of their arrest. And so then their uh, blood type and their tissue types are known and uh, their organs are shopped around to transplant tourists who come from all over the world for their surgery. Uh, Some US insurance companies still pay for this. Uh, The prisoner is then executed by the harvest uh, on the day of the transplant tourist surgery. Uh, This this process has been banned uh, in some countries of the world, notably in uh, Israel, Spain, Italy, Taiwan, Norway, Belgium, but still legal in the U.S. I heard the story of how this got banned in Israel. A a patient came to his doctor and says, Doc, I need a pre-op physical. I'm going to China for an organ transplant scheduled on such and such a day. And the doctor said, wait a minute, how can you schedule a transplant? You know, how do you know that there will be someone uh, that's a match for you available on that day? Well, the truth is they do know because they will take that prisoner that is matched to you and they will execute them for your organs on that day. Uh, There's a, a doctor's group that you can research online that we're very grateful to. They're called Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting that, and they have shined the light on this issue. There's also a documentary that you can see online called Human Harvest directed by Leon Lee. And I'm telling you, it's not easy to watch, but it documents the shock and horror of a lot of people from uh, Taiwan who thought they were going to China to get their organ done. And then we're chagrined and horrified later to find that someone had been executed to give them that organ. 
Well, I, you know, I mentioned that not because we're doing it in the United States. We've talked about what we do do in the United States and how you can help develop your relationship with your doctor so you don't get caught up not knowing all these things. But just so people know, on one hand, how lucky we are to be in the United States where we can discuss these things openly and how tragic it will be if this uh, current fad of censoring conversations continues in the United States, that we can't bring these things up. And to show what at the end of the line, what can actually happen and why we have to fight for ethics, want our doctors to be ethical. We as human beings need to be ethical because we don't want to fall into the pit that communist China is in. Yeah, oh. I have a positive note. Uh, a few weeks ago, this was in the news, uh, the United States actually did propose at the United Nations that there be an investigation into the situation of the Uyghur Muslims in China. But unfortunately, uh, China was able to pressure a majority of nations to vote this down. They were even able to convince India and Brazil to abstain from the vote. So the vote did not pass. Oh. It's such a shame. Well, I want to thank you, doctor, for all the work you're doing in this arena. And can you give your website again so people can go check it out and read some more about these issues? I can't believe we're done already. I've, I've been so <laughs> pleased to speak with you and you've had so many good questions and there's so much more to say, but if people want to know the rest of the story, uh, they can go to our website, which is respectforhumanlife.com. And what is the title of your book and where can people get it? Uh, it's called uh, Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life. And it's available on Amazon and on Kindle on Amazon. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your time. And it was an honor having you on the show. Thank you so very much. And for my listeners... Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I know this is sort of a grim topic, but sometimes we have to go there, don't we? And uh, you know how to hear us on our apps, on the podcast, 24 hours after the Monday show, if you can't listen on Monday. And all the usual suspects have the podcast, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. And um, I just thank you so much for listening and especially listening to something as important as what to do when you have these end of life choices. So whether you agree or disagree, share the show anyway. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud. <laughs>